It is indeed week two. We've been here seven days, eight days. We've almost weaned ourselves off whatever we were doing over summer. We might be starting to fall into some kind of college routine. It's Tuesday again, that means up at 6am, get on the tram, get to college. Now, I for one am grateful for this sense of routine. I'm falling into some kind of rhythm and I actually know where I'm supposed to be each day of the week. And for me, returning to college feels like getting things back on an even keel. But some of us might be feeling horribly unbalanced. This might be your first foray from first-year subjects into second-year subjects, and you've begun with systematic theology units with people like Mike Bird. (laughs) This might be your first foray into theological study altogether, and you might actually be feeling a bit disoriented, a little bit out of kilter, a little bit out of balance. And whether you're relatively new around college or you've been here for some years or some decades, then you'll start to discover that theological study can pull and push us every which way and often we feel like we're not getting the balance quite right. It's easy to illustrate this problem of balance. It seems like a long time ago, but it was only 10 days that we were at launch camp, many of us, and Don got into youth leader mode and made us walk from one end of a room to another one to decide, are you cat people or are you a dog person? Do you do mountains or do you do beaches? And it wasn't long before we got as far as, are you a feeling person or are you a thinking person? And God has graced a small number of us just right so that they could stand safely in the middle. (laughs) But others of us found ourselves more down one end or more down the other end. And this issue of Feeling versus thinking is one of the primary balances that we can struggle with in learning theology and in applying theology. It sometimes feels like we might have feeling and thinking pitted against each other. And not least as we try to study God and his Bible. Perhaps you're going through something of that tension this week or this semester. Not least of those sorts of concerns is this question of this Bible suddenly becoming a textbook. All this delight that I once had in reading it is starting to get compressed and boxed into right answer, wrong answer, cerebral analysis. The worst case is that we might spend all our time in the library thinking about God and no time in chapel or on our knees feeling about God. And yet we're alert to other churches and other training contexts where the pendulum swings the other way, where the only way to know God, to worship God and to use the Bible is to turn our brains off and to find in the Bible whatever we feel like finding this week. And finding that balance is tricky. Give a moment's thought to where you find yourself on that spectrum. Where do you naturally sit? Are you more comfortable feeling? Are you more at home thinking? Where do you find Ridley potentially stretching you at the moment? Are you worried, particularly at this end of semester, when you're reading through all the learning requirements, that everything's becoming far too academic? Or can you see glimpses of the emotions and the feelings and faith in action that we hope you can also hear in our classes? Well, while we're in a contemplative mood, we might also reflect on how well we know these tiny letters, 2 John and 3 John. I wonder how many of you turned to John chapter 2 rather than to the second letter of John. (laughs) They're officially the shortest documents in the whole Bible. They're buried at the back after the Gospels and Paul and all those other important 
passages that we don't say we prefer over others and yet we read more of in church and in our own reading. They're perhaps even overshadowed by 1 John. If you're lucky enough to go to one of those churches that does do a series on 1 John, you might get five, six, seven weeks on 1 John. And if we're lucky, another week to tack on these other little appendixes. I can't say I've yet found any reference to 2 John or 3 John in the prayer book. It's not something that comes up in everyday conversation with believers. Perhaps we just zip through them as we try to race to finish our Bible reading plan. Hey, look, it's 2 John, 3 John, Jude, then I'm going to get through Revelation and tick the box. (laughs) Done. And as we zip through, it's just like passing by all these little country towns on a drive and failing to stop and smell the roses. And when we pause to look at these letters, we see a church leader who's concerned to help churches and individuals adjust their balance better. Each of 2 John and 3 John is hardly focused on both truth and love, and both of them together. Sure, 2 John that we look at this week focuses a little bit more on truth, so you thinking people can look forward to the next 20 minutes. Feelers hang out for a couple of weeks away and when we'll get to 3 John. But each of us will find in each of these letters a thoughtful pastoral challenge to our balance and to the significance and the godliness of both truth and love. Well, we can look at an epistolary outline as we have there on the screen. And when we study an ancient letter, it's a whole lot like looking at a modern email header. From X to Y, greetings. And what's fascinating about the Bible's letters is that they often expand one or other of those elements. So if we have a look here at 2 John, we see a very simple sender, from the elder. We don't actually know anything more about him. Then we get an expanded recipient line to the lady chosen by God and to her children. And as we read through the rest of the letter, particularly the closing comments, we read about another sister and her children, also chosen by God. And we become confident that this letter is addressed to a church and its congregation. And the elder doesn't stop there. These are church members whom I love in the truth. And the elder isn't their only adoring fan. This congregation is also loved by all who know the truth. And he continues, this love fest is happening because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. And even the greetings gets extended beyond the standard ancient convention and keeps hammering these elements. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. And even the slowest engineer like me can start to spot something slightly repetitive going on, even just in the email header. Here is an elder who's concerned for his congregation and especially about matters of truth and love. As we make our way into the guts of the letter, there are actually only three overt instructions that come. We've got two paragraphs in the core of our chapel Bibles, and I'll be breaking the second paragraph in half so that we can spot the three instructions given to this church. The first instruction fills the next paragraph in our Bibles. The elder, let's join church tradition and give him the name John, continues his concern for both truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children, that is some of the church members, walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. I hope there's nothing here 
that catches us by surprise. Such language appears all throughout the prior letter, 1 John, that we might hear and know slightly better. And while 2 John here focuses a little bit more on truth, again, we'll see the next letter has more to say about love. And both of them talk about keeping truth and love in balance. There's a lot more we could explore in this first paragraph, but John is still just warming up for his main paragraph with its two further instructions. John wants his spiritual children to be walking in truth and love because there's danger on the loose. Here's something that some churches are really good at hearing. Here's something that other churches don't hear frequently enough. Verse 7, I say all this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. And deceivers is a great translation. The original has connotations of wandering away or going astray. The elder can see that his congregation is in danger from deceivers who have themselves wandered astray and who are now trying to cause others to join them. And it's not just one or two misguided individuals. We're told that there are many of them out and about. And if these are the same kind of false teachers as 1 John describes, then these aren't even just random members of the outside world who have it in for Christians, but these are former members of the church who are troubling Christians. They're church insiders. They're people who know how churches work, how to stand, what to wear, how to speak, what words will earn them a hearing. You'll see throughout more and more Ridley subjects that a lot of what we study are the number of different ways to get Jesus right and the ways to get Jesus wrong. It's why you're obliged to sit through church history classes and theology classes and why so many of them actually focus on Jesus. We meet good Christology and we meet bad Christology. And sometimes the bad Christology is an intentional heresy. It's just misguided, it's wandered, it's gone astray. And the problematic Christology that John focuses on here is the kind where many deceivers are denying that Jesus has come in the flesh. They can't stomach the idea of the incarnation. Now, I don't know many churches that are plagued with that particular heresy. Most of them, in Western countries at least, are faced with the opposite issue of not even thinking that Jesus could possibly be divine. Their concern is that Jesus is only human. Other scholars wonder if John is just using this phrase here as a shorthand for all the different kinds of ways we might get Jesus wrong. Well, whether this congregation has one particular problem or several different problems, John is adamant that getting Jesus wrong is a problem. And again, I trust that that's not grand news to you this morning, even if you haven't read to John recently and reflected on it in your quiet time. Getting Jesus wrong is a problem. It's caused John to write this letter. There are deceivers out and about, and many of them. And they're familiar with churches, and they're chameleons who can slot in nicely and look like they belong and get airtime and use the airtime unhelpfully. These are people who don't teach Jesus correctly. And to drive home the urgency of the point, John brings out the big term that gets us to sit up and pay attention. No matter how natural they might feel out front, such a person who teaches falsely about Jesus can be called the deceiver. Any of these people can be called even the antichrist. Here is the kind of person that we should be alert to. We should start to feel scared. We should be appropriately concerned to avoid such teaching. 
This is where John's second instruction comes into play. As much as we don't want to be paranoid in our churches, we do need to acknowledge that not every teacher is orthodox. And John's overt instruction comes out in verse 8. If you're looking for one verse to memorise or to hang your understanding of the letter on, here it is in verse 8. Watch out. Be alert. Pay attention. These people exist. If you're more at the love end of the spectrum, be particularly alert that kindness for people and concern about a teacher's feelings ought not cloud over every concern we might have with their teaching. John points out what's at stake here. Don't lose what we have worked for, but gain your full reward. There's great contrast here to study. Those of us who are wrestling with the questions of eternal security versus human responsibility, here's one verse to engage. And there's this great contrast between losing and gaining being reinforced by a great wordplay in the original. John uses two almost identical words with almost opposite meanings here. It's one reason why you should persist with slaving away at Greek on a Tuesday. We might say in English, don't squander what we've worked for, but secure your full reward. Or as I've got on the screen there, don't waste what we've worked for, but win your full reward. And in case we're still not convinced, John spells out a little more of these dangers of getting (laughs) Jesus wrong. Whether verse 9 applies to the false teachers or to anyone who starts to follow them, John warns how dire it is to wander away. Such a person runs ahead of orthodoxy. And we need to be careful here. This is John writing John's way, not Paul writing Paul's way. And we shouldn't confuse John's use of athletic metaphors with other metaphors we find in the Bible. Elsewhere, it's great to run the prize, to persist to the end, to win the race. But here, racing ahead, getting out of step with the pack is a bad thing. If we fall out of step with orthodoxy and we don't continue in the teaching of Christ, we're in a bad way. And John's language is all too easy to understand and all too terrifying. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This is John's shorthand way, having God, of talking about the benefits of knowing God and eternal life. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Mind you, like a good pastor, John wants to assure his readers that this doesn't have to be the case. He hurries to include the positive alternative as well. Whoever does continue in the teaching has both the Son and the Father. Don't race ahead out of some great desire to seem new and contemporary. When it comes to teachings about Jesus, slow and steady, even apparently tired and repetitive, is what secures us. Don't sell your souls to something that seems too new and too shiny just because everything else in society has to be new and shiny. If you're sitting in the library reading dusty books, sometimes literally, about dusty older thinkers and it sounds like everything you've heard in Sunday school, be grateful that it sounds like generations and generations of orthodox thinkers. As you go into, out into a world that wants new and shiny and contemporary, Be willing to wear the disdain of appearing dull and boring and orthodox about Jesus. 
And we're zeroing in on John's third instruction. We might desire something that sounds contemporary and shiny. We might be tired of hearing the same old thing, of being lumped together with other apparently backward conservatives. We might want to distance our anything from so anything distance ourselves from anything that feels too musty or simply too familiar and we might think about entertaining something just that little bit more exotic. Watch out, says John. That's running too far ahead. That's being too progressive in a number of ways we might use that word. Now, I'm not at all saying that we ought not be contemporary in our communication. There's great things to be said for connecting in modern and contemporary ways, but don't confuse contemporary manner in such a way that it corrupts our orthodox matter. It's one of the debates that's kicking around about things like the new Passion Translation of the Bible. Is it helpfully fresh in its style that it can drive home useful things? Is it too progressive in its content? And this is John's final warning here, that we might find ourselves often accidentally tempted to condone contemporary progressive teaching about Jesus. That's what verse 10 is talking about. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this orthodox teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Those of you who have been in my classes will know that I'm often fond of a good inspirational poster. Brian was talking about inspirational posters last week. You can imagine something from Romans 12 that we read in chapel on Thursday. This beautiful gingham tablecloth covered in cutlery and crockery, a Thanksgiving feast laid out, steaming apple pies, and across the bottom the pie statement, practice hospitality, Romans 12, 13. Well, I want to know where's the inspirational poster for 2 John 10. Don't practice hospitality, 2 John 10. I haven't seen one, although there is a Kurong sale starting today and maybe I'll duck past. (laughs) Do not take such people into your house and do not welcome them. Now, John isn't talking here particularly about personal hospitality. You're not going to risk your salvation by speaking with a misdirected teacher. And John's certainly not saying anything about issues of hospitality towards unbelievers. You're not going to gamble your eternal life just because you invite a pagan uni friend home, somebody from workmate over for dinner, let them couch surf in your house. It's true that any contact with false teachers or unbelievers can carry some risk, but that's not what John is warning about here. He's warning about anything that assists or that endorses such a false teacher who doesn't bring correct teaching about Jesus. Here, the language of house probably refers to house church. You ought not invite such a person to teach in your church. You ought not to sponsor their ministry, whether here or overseas. You ought not blindly add your like to their views in social media. You ought not encourage others to digest the works that these people produce, to read their books or their blogs or to listen to their podcasts. John warns us that facilitating their ministry... The ministry of deceivers is as bad as providing that teaching ourselves. Read this instruction carefully. Anyone who welcomes them, who endorses them, shares in their wicked work. As we reach the end of John's three instructions here, it starts to make sense why he started his letter with such an emphasis on truth and love. Instruction number one, we must walk in truth and love. Don't be swayed to wander away from either of these. Instruction number two, watch out. Don't waste what we've worked for, but win our full reward. 
be alert to the temptations of false teaching. Instruction number three, don't be guilty even of aiding and abetting such false teaching. Don't welcome a false teacher into your midst or assist their ministry. Don't share in their wicked work. Well, if you're prone to the truth end of the spectrum, then this letter is one more encouragement to get the truth right. If you struggle with some of the doctrines that we do in our systematic theology classes, it's one more encouragement for thinking carefully and straight about Jesus and other parts of the Christian gospel. We do hear the reminder that if you're a thinker, we need to recognise that John in no way absolves us from love as well. And we'll see more about that balance when we get to 3 John. We need to remember that people can be entirely orthodox even if they're not cerebral. You might have your little heresy meter out and walking around just waiting for someone to trip up and say something slightly not right. I have a spare if you need one. But do you know what? You can find good, orthodox, Jesus-loving people who can't even spell or articulate the word Christological. Thinkers, we need to be careful. We need to be careful about how we pull out our heresy meters and walk around. We don't want to be that person at morning tea that a new student at college or a new visitor at church just dare not open their mouths around because they might say the syllable wrongly. Michael Bird. I was delighted to read a review of Michael Bird on the weekend that said, Mike's book is generous with his treatment of other views. What a great thing to be known for. And John's call for us to think straight about Jesus is challenging for those of us who are thinkers. It's also challenging, perhaps more challenging, for those of us who are feelers. I spent some time last weekend with somebody who would definitely qualify down this end of the spectrum. She's much more interested in the love part of this balance. She's actually pretty weak when it comes to thinking about matters of truth, and particularly matters of Christological truth. She wants to be nice and warm and welcoming. She's not very interested in the idea of God's wrath and judgment or the idea that somebody like Jesus might have to die to appease God's wrath. She's keen to be nice to all people. Her kids are learning a little bit more about Buddhism. She wants to be nice to those who don't even know about Jesus. And as a result, result, she's not very strong in her beliefs about Jesus. She's stuck at this end of the spectrum and needs some more of the balance. And such a person is picking up what we hear all around us, even in secular media, you can watch it. And if Christianity gets a mention, it often boils down to, isn't the core message of your teaching, love one another? Well, yes, that's entirely true. But it's only half true. So if you reckon your love heavily outweighs your truth, then you need to hear the warnings here in 2 John. Being too tolerant of false teaching might be kind-hearted, but it puts at risk your own eternal life and even the fate of other believers. We need to hear John's teaching about what we might call tough love and that tolerating any and every statement about Jesus may not be edifying in the long run. So as you go from here, as you go into your studies, as you think about ministries you're already engaged with or ministries you might become employed in, how does this balance apply in those ministries? Do our kids' ministries teach a full and orthodox balance about Jesus? Do our music ministries give an accurate image of Jesus? What about our home groups and our discipleship programs? Sunday night at church, we had an ad for Alpha, and the only thing the ad said was, isn't it great how much God loves people? Hooray! But I trust there'll be more to the balance. 
This kind of reasoning, thinking, balance between thinking and feeling is one reason why we sit through systematic theology units on a Tuesday morning. Thank God for Mike and Scott this morning. How else might we might cultivate Christian environments where we're concerned to check, where we're allowed to check whether what we've heard is orthodox? Do we shape our Bible study groups, our sermon discussion conversations, so that it's okay to raise a query? It's increasingly a question for all of us. How do we do this in non-Anglo cultures where it's less acceptable to ask a question about a teacher or a guest speaker? We have to be careful that we don't let love or cultural values that might pass as love, like tolerance or politeness, get in the way of sufficiently valuing truth. But the other way around as well, as we listen to John's old command that we've had from the beginning from Jesus himself, that we pursue our Christian zeal also with love. Let's conclude with prayer. Now God, we thank you for all those who have taught us well. We thank you for the truth of the message about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, for the new life that this brings for we who believe. Please, would you be kind in training us to keep walking in both truth and love, alert to deceivers and to antichrists who would cause us to wander from Jesus. Would you help our responses to each other and to those outside the church model your command to balance both truth and love to your praise and glory. Amen. page 24 of our prayer book.